Hi, everybody. Hey, uh, really excited about this message, but before we dive into it, I wanted to tell you about an exciting opportunity for our church. In, in a couple of weeks, we are hosting the national conference for our denomination. You know, maybe you're newer to the Compass Church and unaware that we're a part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. Absolutely wonderful denomination that holds a national conference every two years. Well, in, in the few weeks, actually June 18, 19, and 20, it's going to be right here. And it's pretty exciting. The registration numbers are coming in. And uh, we have over 1,500 pastors and ministry leaders registered already. And you're like, 1,500? How many does this room sit? Yeah, 1,500. Every seat, without exception, will be taken. We're actually going to have to line folding chairs in the back and have an overflow room. It's going to be crazy and a very exciting opportunity for our church to love on all of these pastors who are faithfully serving the Lord all over our country. In fact, when I say to love on them, we need a bunch of hosts if we're going to do this well. A bunch of volunteers that can help us just be there to serve and to help provide the meals that we'll be providing. So would you consider, we've actually got hundreds of volunteers already signed up, but it's still not enough. We have a lot of slots that still need to be filled. And so what are you doing June 18, 19, and 20? And do you have some hours that maybe you could come over and help us serve these pastors? You'll find all the information in your navigator. Go ahead, take a look at that. You can see how you can explore some of the roles that are still available, things you feel very comfortable with, but through which you could really bless the national cause of Christ through caring and loving on all these pastors who are coming. If you're not able to serve at the event, do pray, would you? I mean, this is just a great chance to encourage pastors, to train pastors, to inspire these pastors, and we just pray that they go back home pumped to serve the Lord. Uh, so, fun times. All right. With that said, we are beginning a four-week study in the book of Judges of this guy named Gideon, and the series is called Against all odds. Do you know much about Gideon? Some of you do. You already love this guy. Others of you are like, I don't know anything about Gideon. The book of Judges is a, a little overlooked sometimes. It's in the Old Testament, and it covers this period in Israel's history between the start of their nation. Remember, Moses brought them out of Egypt. They were slaves there, and Moses led them out. They wandered in the desert. They came into the land of Canaan, and they started a country there. Well, for the first couple hundred years of that country, they were ruled by judges. And when I say judges, I don't mean, uh, you know, guys in robes and courts of law. It was a different type of leader then. But God rose up 12 different judges to lead in these critical moments. Gideon is one of these judges. And we're going to learn about him, and I can't wait to study. But before we open to Gideon, I want to show you something. This is one of my most treasured possessions. It is a pen set given to me by my mother-in-law two years ago when my father-in-law passed away. 
My mother-in-law said, Jeff, I want you to have this. She goes, you probably saw it. It was sitting on his desk the entirety of his career, and now I want it to sit on your desk so you can remember your father-in-law. And I treasure it. You'll see it's made of a jagged piece of marble that has historical significance. So let me, uh, here's the pen set. And now as we zoom into the nameplate on the top, you see Harold W. Giannopoulos, MD. My father-in-law was a medical doctor. In fact, his parents gave him this pen set upon his graduation from medical school. I know that because there's also a brass plate on the front side. It says, from mom and dad... From, and now it's referring to the slab of marble. The marble is from the site of Hippocrates, his hospital on the island of Kos in Greece, July 1965. Um, the, my father-in-law was Greek. Was that kind of obvious from his last name? Yeah. And his parents are Greek, and they're very proud of their Greek heritage, Uh, The father of modern medicine was a Greek by the name of Hippocrates. He's from the island of Kos in Greece. Um, This marble came from his hospital. Do you know of the Hippocratic Oath? That's where it all stems from. In fact, the Greeks kind of think they invented everything. Uh, My my father-in-law would say, you know, son, that we invented medicine. I'm like, I know, Dad, I know. And I love this because I imagine the pride of the parents as they gave this to their son. Our little boy, Harold, has become a doctor. No, not just a doctor, a Greek doctor, which is the best kind. And he is going to follow in the steps of Hippocrates. And it's going, you know, parents have a way of celebrating the accomplishments and believing in the potential of children like no one else. And I can just imagine them filled with pride and anticipation that he will be the best doctor ever. That's why I love it. Now, he not only fulfilled their expectations, I believe he went way beyond their expectations. They were just hoping he'd be a great doctor. He became a great soldier of Jesus Christ. My father-in-law found Christ later as an adult, and upon finding Jesus, devoted his life to the service of Christ. He said, Lord, my life is yours. Use me every day. I'm at your service. You want to make a difference in people? I am your servant in the lives of people. And we didn't realize how vast his impact in the lives of people for Christ was until when I received this two years ago when he died at his wake. We scheduled like a three-hour visitation thinking that would be enough time for people to come and share their condolences and see the body and As it turned out, six hours, people were waiting for two hours in line. It was incredible. We were exhausted. Over 800 people showed up, and I was being part of the family, in the line. And in a steady parade of people telling me how my father-in-law impacted their lives, I was just blown away. Uh, I mean, they're grabbing my hands going, your father-in-law, Jeff, led me to Jesus. I didn't know Christ, but he shared the gospel and helped me find life eternal. Like, wow. And then others would say, yeah, I was part of a Bible study that he led, and I was already a Christian, but I just took off spiritually inspired by his example. So many said, in my darkest hour, he was the one who came to my aid. 
I was in the hospital, and I was freaking out. And after he had worked a long day on his own time, he came back to my room, and he sat at my bed, and he held my hand, and he prayed for me, and he read scripture, and he brought hope when I was hopeless. And just person after person after person after person. And we just walked away exhausted and inspired by the impact God can bring through one person, ordinary person, fully available to him. Now, when I say that, uh, you may say, well, great for your father-in-law. I'm delighted that he impacted so many lives. That ain't happening to me. I'm I'm painfully ordinary. I, I lack the abilities necessary to influence the lives of others, or help God's cause in any way. Are you tempted to think that? Well, then you need this series. Because God loves working for the, with the underdog. God loves winning a, a battle where it's against all odds, where people who you thought could never be used by him end up getting used by him in mind-boggling ways. Friends, you need to study the story of Gideon with me. So let's take a look, shall we? Gideon. His story is found in Judges chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse 11. Simply says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. There's a lot in those verses, isn't there? So who were the Midianites? Well, they were the army, or the enemy of Israel. Israel was here, and to the east, to the southeast, the Midianites were this desert-dwelling, ferocious uh, army of soldiers that just uh, caused endless agony to come Israel's way. Here's what their strategy was. They stole food. The, the Midianites would wait until harvest time. After the Israelites had harvested all their crops and had their barns filled, the Midianites would swoop in. The passage says like a swarm of locusts. They were, they were desert-dwelling warriors riding on herds of camels at high speeds, entering in, stealing all the food, taking it home leaving the Israelites in famine and starvation. For seven years, this was going on. These are the days of Gideon. Now you understand why he's hiding the wheat he's threshing in a wine press. You know, you say, threshing wheat in a wine press? Isn't a wine press for making wine? Yeah, right. That's it. So normally a wine press was a hole in the ground carved into the limestone. The idea would be you put grapes in the hole and you stomp on them and you make the wine. But threshing wheat wasn't done in a hole. Threshing wheat was done up on a hilltop, kind of the opposite. The reason is that threshing wheat, you wanted the wind. They would pound the wheat and then they'd throw it in the air and all of the chaff, the outer coating that was light and paper-like, would blow away in the wind, and the heavier grain, the wheat, would fall to the ground. That's how you separated the wheat from the chaff. And so you did it up on a hill where the wind was strong. In a hole, there's no wind. And so this is not an efficient way to thresh wheat. It doesn't even make sense until you factor in the Midianites, who are just waiting to steal the wheat. And now we begin to understand what's going on. Gideon is a chicken. He's hiding. 
He's down in the hole, and he's maybe peeking out, going, are they around? Are they around? No, okay, here we go. He throws up some, and a little bit of the chaff floats away because the wind's pretty low. And then he hides some more, and then he does it again. The fear on this man is evident by what he's doing. Now, I also believe his fear, now here I'm speculating, but I'm pretty certain I'm right. I think the fear is also evident by what this angel of the Lord does. You know, the passage says, the angel of the Lord, oh, I should clarify who that is, by the way. This reference to the angel of the Lord is found frequently in the Old Testament, and it's a reference to a visible manifestation of God himself. We'll figure that out later, even in this passage. It'll start to say, you know, the angel of the Lord said, and then next it'll say, the Lord said, I mean, it's synonymous. But God appears, and he kind of looks like an angel. He kind of looks like a man. At first, Gideon doesn't recognize that this is actually God. He'll, he'll see that eventually, but not at first. But it says here, the angel of the Lord came and just sat down under the oak in Ophrah. Uh, I, I imagine that he just sat there, and he's watching Gideon. He's right by Gideon. But Gideon doesn't see him until the angel speaks. Have you ever... Uh, accidentally snuck up on somebody and they didn't realize you were there. Maybe they're doing the dishes and you come up behind them and you say, hi, hello, you know, and they just, you know, jump out of their skin. I think that's what happened. You know, we know that Gideon's already paranoid, right? Because he's, he's looking out for the Midianites and right behind him is this angel of the Lord, the Lord. And when he speaks, you know, Gideon's like, oh, oh, oh. And, uh, speculation, but I'm right. So let's uh, imagine how chicken liver this guy is. And what does the angel of the Lord say when he reveals that he's there? Well, well, let's read verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. No laugh? I think that's hilarious. I mean, mighty warrior? Who are you talking to? I mean, this guy's got his knees knocking and he's jumping out of his skin. He is a chicken. And yet God says, I say, you're a mighty warrior. Friends, the statement that we see here of what the God says is profound. It's actually two profound realities that are unseen by Gideon. And as we'll see, two realities Gideon doesn't believe. He doesn't believe either of them. What are they? Well, let's highlight the first. The first is the Lord is with you. This is a reference to the presence and activity in the life of Gideon. Uh, The Lord is right there. He's involved, though invisible, involved in your life. Gideon's, we're going to see, he doesn't buy it. The second reality, the first was something about the Lord. The second is something about Gideon. And that is that Gideon is a mighty warrior. The Lord looks at him and says, young man, you are going to be a soldier in my army. More than that, you're going to be a general leading my army to victory. And Gideon does not see, we'll see that clearly. He does not see the the potential within him. Uh, And friends, we need to remember that these two things are true of us as well, though we can't see them. You know, to help us remember these two, two truths, God's present and active, and you are empowered by God, you are a strong warrior of his, you have this latent potential within you, 
God says that all Christians have the Holy Spirit within them, God-given ability so we can fulfill the assignment God gives us. In order to remember these two, I got props, okay? So the first one, that God is present and active. I was like, how can we symbolize this invisible reality? And I thought of this. This is a motion detector. You know, you've seen these on people's houses. You put this on your house, and if someone's sneaking by your house unseen and hidden in darkness. I don't know how they work, but somehow they know the the motion detector senses their presence and activity. And what does it do? It triggers it to light up. And those who were previously unseen are now exposed. This is kind of like faith. We need a spiritual version of this. Lord, you're here. You're active. I can't see you. Give me the faith, the capacity to recognize your presence and activity and light up the glorious reality of your nearness, even though visibly I can't see. This is what Gideon needs. This is what we need, the capacity to see the presence and activity of God. And then I was thinking, what is another uh, device that sees unseen things. This one, though, Gideon's potential that recognizes Gideon is a mighty warrior. And I thought of a stud finder. No, I didn't mean like an athletic stud. That's not where I'm going with it. Although I was working on some house stuff with a friend of mine, and he took the stud finder and he put it on me, and he said, I don't know, it's not registering anything. What does that tell me, you know? How a stud finder works is a stud finder finds unseen strength. If if you're looking for a strong place to hang a heavy mirror, you may know that the drywall all looks the same to us, but beneath the surface, you've got these gaps of, you know what, 15 inches of air. And if you hang it there, it's going to rip out and fall. But the stud finder finds, though it all looks the same on the surface, beep, 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 beep. Here is unseen strength. Hang your mirror here. And this is what God does. You know, God is like looking for unseen strength. And friends, if you're a Christian, it's there. The Holy Spirit's in each of us, giving us supernatural ability to fulfill God's tasks. It's lighting up, baby, on you, saying, here is a spiritual stud, a a, uh, mighty warrior. Now, Gideon doesn't see either. He doesn't see the presence of God, and he doesn't see his own potential. And we know that from what he says next. Let me show you. Verse 13, Gideon responds, Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us, huh? Tell me that. Uh, you know, the statement was, the Lord is with you. He's present and active. And Gideon's going, I don't buy it. Why is all this Midianite torturing going on then? He's looking at the hardship in his life and concluding, God must have abandoned us. Be careful that you don't make that mistake. It's so common for people to look at their life, and it's a mess, and it's so hard, and to conclude that that must mean God's not here, and God doesn't care, and God's not at work. No! The Bible promises in Psalm 34 that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. 
You know, when you're going through a really hard time, though it's tempting to believe God's far, he's actually close and active. Well, Gideon continues his rant. He says, where are all of his wonders, you know, that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us, Gideon said. He's given us into the hands of the Midianites. Uh, Gideon knows about the stories of old. He's heard it from his parents, his grandparents. The, the glory days when God led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Moses parted the Red Sea. The plagues took out the uh, Egyptians. Water out of the rock. Manna, you know, and these are the glory days. God brought them into Canaan and brought victory that established them in the land. Gideon's sick of hearing about the glory of all God did then and there. What about now and here? The conviction of Gideon is that the glory days are over, that all the good stuff is done, that, yeah, maybe God was active and present before, but he isn't now. Friends, we run the same risk. Uh, uh, Do you love reading about revivals in church history, or maybe even in the Bible, the great moments of God working? And are you tempted to assume that those days are over and God's just not active anymore. I run this risk. I I love history. I read it all the time, and I run the risk of idolizing the past. In fact, just to reveal this strange bent in me, I'll show you my unique collection. I have this hobby that I'm guessing no one else has. Maybe I'm wrong, but I doubt it. I have a collection of Chicagoland biographies. Here, I have 40 biographies, all linked to Chicagoland, all by pastors and spiritual leaders, men and women that God used in powerful ways. And I can't get enough of them. I just devour them. Uh, It's something about the link to our area. Maybe it's one step closer to us, though it's separated in time. And I read about the 1800s when D.L. Moody did incredible things. I read about the roaring 20s, and I read about the 40s. And sometimes I find myself just going, oh, man, why am I here and now? Why couldn't I have been there and then? That was the awesome stuff. As if God has lost interest in his cause or that he cared about those people more than he does us. It's crazy talk. Friends, our God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's still here. And so don't be like Gideon and say, oh, the glory days are over. No, they're not. How does God respond? Gideon's like, oh, the the good stuff that happened out of Egypt is over. God's abandoned us. Look what God responds with. Verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, go. Go. In the strength you have, which is the strength God gives, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? God is like interrupting Gideon in his whining about, oh, all the good stuff is over. And God's like, listen, stop right there. You wonder if I'm present and active delivering my people? Well, that's what I'm here to do, and I'm going to do it through you. 
that's a warning to us, you know, when you start whining to the Lord, Lord, how come you don't do great stuff and work in revival ways? And God's like, well, are you going to rise up and be my person? Because I will if you'll say yes. And he'll send us to be a part of the solution rather than just complaining about the problem. And sure enough, uh, God says, you're, you're my plan, Gideon. I'm sending you. Now, Gideon's not receiving this well at all. Uh, look at him. He says in verse 15, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan, it's the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. This guy's got a major self-esteem problem. Wouldn't you agree? The Lord's calling a mighty warrior, and he says, I'm pathetic. In fact, let me clarify. So Israel, a big nation, divided into 12 tribes. Manasseh's one of the 12 tribes. And then the tribe is divided into extended family units called clans. And, and Gideon's like, I'm from the most pathetic clan ever, and I'm the most pathetic member of my clan. I mean, it's all just bad, bad, bad. And uh, be careful that you don't step into that same self-loathing. Oh, I can't. God calls me a mighty warrior. Ha! I'm lousy and embarrassingly ordinary, and I've got no ability and no capacity to influence lives. We all fall into that same trap. And God speaks up and says, stop it. That ain't true. Does he say that? Yeah, he does. Let's take a look at how the Lord responds. Verse 16, God just simply and forwardly says what he's already said. I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites. Friends, faith is the ability to believe what God says is true, even though it doesn't seem to be true from what you see. Do you see that? God just says, let's, let's highlight the two things. Uh, Gideon's doubting that God is with him. The Lord has abandoned us. No, God says, I will be with you. Will you believe by faith that I am present and active in your life? And secondly, as, as God looks at Gideon as a mighty warrior and he says, it can't happen, I'm pathetic. No, you will strike down the Midianites. There is a strength in you that you don't see, but I do. Gideon, will you believe these things? You see, that's the moment of truth that we're at here. Gideon is either going to stick with what he said before, and that is fooey on all of this. God has abandoned us, and I'm a wimp. No, I won't do what you're saying. Is he going to say that? Or will he choose to believe and step up and say, you know what? Lord, if you say it, I believe it. I believe you're present and active still today here in my life. And I believe that I am a mighty warrior, so let's do this thing. What will he choose? Come back next week to find out, huh? So I'm trying to keep you here. But maybe the more important question is what will you do? Because God's saying that to you right now. Do you realize that? God's looking at each of you who are a Christian and saying, hey, I, I involve all my children in my mission. 
There are nobody that God just says, oh, you can just watch it happen. No, Uh, we believe in the priesthood of all believers that God says we're all agents of his. We are all ambassadors of Christ. We all have a critical role in his advancing cause. And so the question is, will we believe that and say, God, I think you're still at work in my life. I'm going to believe you're present and active, and I'm going to believe I have strength you've given that I can't see. I am a mighty warrior. Let's do this thing. Because God will, if you're listening, call you out of your comfort zone to interact with people in ways that scare you, that are bold, a boldness you don't naturally have but a boldness that will yield fruit in their lives, helping them in their journey with Jesus. And so the question is, will you allow the doubts to keep you placent and hiding in a hole? Or will you stand up and say, God, I believe what you say about me is true. And I'm going to follow you. Let's do this thing and see what happens. That's the question. And I'd like to end by Showing you one of my books, you know, I mentioned all these 40 biographies of Chicagoland pastors and spiritual leaders that I have. Well, this one is called Young Man on Fire, and it's about Tori Johnson. I pick it because Tori was a member of our church. Tori, uh, when I say our church, I'm referring to the Wheaton campus of our church. In fact, here's his family. This is a long time ago, but this is Tori Johnson and his wife, Evelyn. Interestingly, 17 years ago, their joint funeral happened at our Wheaton campus. And I say joint funeral. (laughs) This is amazing. Are you ready for this? They were married 71 years. And after 71 years of marriage, Tori died of natural causes. And the next day, Evelyn died as well. Isn't that beautiful? Darling, die the day after I do. That'd be great. Uh, This is Arlene, their youngest daughter, and Arlene is still a member of our church. And so, great story. So, Tori is a, um, at this time, a young pastor of a mid-sized church here in Chicagoland. And the moment I want to describe that I'm so moved by in this book goes back to 1944 on April the 13th. Uh, Tori's in Columbus, Ohio at a pastor's conference, and he's in his hotel room wrestling with an idea, an idea he's increasingly believing is a gift from God, that God is giving him this idea. And the idea involves starting a youth ministry. Uh, Tori has this idea of not just a youth ministry for his church, but one that combines churches throughout Chicagoland working together. The reason he's really thinking this will work is because the moment is just ripe with potential. Uh, This is World War II, 1944, and young people are thinking about eternal things at an unprecedented rate, largely because their friends are being drafted into the army, going off to war, many of them dying. And so the young people are just open to spiritual things. And Tori's like, if we work together and had a youth service, you know, designed to them. And in that hotel room, he realizes God is saying, do it. Now, it's going to cost thousands of dollars, require fundraising and borrowing money to make this all happen. He's going to risk everything. He could have so easily have said, 
why would I do this? You know, God's not present and active. Look, at we're involved with a horrific war. God has abandoned us. He's not around these days. Or, who am I? I'm just an ordinary guy. This would require someone great who's done amazing things. You know, I'm just, I don't have what it takes. And he could have taken, he, he, some would say, should have taken a pass. But as it was, Tori said, God, I, I read your word. You tell me that even in the darkest hour, you're present and active. And you tell me that we are all empowered and mighty warriors of yours. So I say, yes, Lord, let's do this thing. And he came back to Chicago and started sharing the vision with friends he knew who were pastors. And more and more they said, sounds awesome. We're in, we're in. And so many, in fact, that he said, we got to rent a big room. One church room isn't going to do it. In fact, he found Orchestra Hall in Chicago, still there today, seats 2,500. Very expensive place to rent. But Tori was going for it. And wouldn't you know, on their first Saturday night, they held this event with music that connected with young people, but praise God, and with preaching that was dynamic, presenting the gospel with power and clarity. The place was packed with young people. They did it again the next Saturday night. Packed house again. And seven Saturdays in a row, they were so filling the place that they were actually turning away thousands of young people. And Tori said, let's rent Chicago Stadium. Remember United Center replaced uh, the Chicago Stadium? Some of us old people, I remember watching the Bulls and the Blackhawks at Chicago Stadium. They rented Chicago Stadium. 25,000 young people packed the house at the Chicago Stadium. Tori's like, let's rent Soldier Field. 65,000 young people piled in. They were accepting Christ by the thousands. And at this point, Tori's like, this is this thing that's happening, this strategy of youth rallies in this way. We can't limit it to Chicago. we got to take this show on the road. And so they launched a ministry called Youth for Christ with Tori as founder and first president of Youth for Christ. And uh, they started ministering all over, uh, first the country and then the world. Now, it's interesting. As president of Youth for Christ, his first job was to hire his first staff member. And, you know, leaders, one of the most important things they do is hiring the right people. And he found this very young guy, you know, uh, green, wet behind the ears, hadn't done much of anything yet, freshly graduated from Wheaton College. But Tori said, I think this young man has potential. And so he hired Billy Graham as his first employee. Not bad hire, huh? Turned out to work pretty well. Well, friends, Youth for Christ has just exploded. It is cranking still today internationally. Youth for Christ is in 110 countries. You want to know about staff? 60,000 staff reaching millions of young people, all from a guy in our church who had the guts to say yes to God's great call. Now, am I, am I telling you that if you believe God's still present and active and that you are, through him, a mighty war, that you're going to reach millions of people? Maybe. Maybe thousands. Maybe, like my father-in-law, it will be hundreds. 
maybe it'll be a handful of people, but even in that case, that handful of people who say, you helped me find life eternal to thrive in Christ, it will be everything to them. Friends, my point is that every assignment God has for his people is of incomprehensible significance, and you will miss and regret immensely if you don't step into the moment of God's prompting and leading. The question really comes down to, will you have faith to believe that even today, even here, and even with you, God is present and active? Let the motion detector ring in your heart. And that you are a mighty warrior capable of being used by him in powerful ways. My prayer is that the Compass Church would just not be a bunch of people who come to a service and go through the motions, but that we would be men and women and young people of faith saying, God, here I am. Jesus, you died to save my soul, so I'm yours. Lead on. I'm not hiding in a hole anymore. I'm stepping out as you prompt me into missions that take me outside of my comfort zone. And let's see what happens. I'm in. Let's go. Well, I think we should pray and commit to go, shall we? Lord, as we pray, I just got to say, I think we all relate all too well to Gideon. You know, as he was cowering and whining about, I'm too plain and ordinary and scared and weak. And I don't know if you're really there. God, we could fall into that same trap. May it not be so. Give us the eyes of faith, God, to believe what you say is real, even though we can't see it. God, help us to see that you're here and that you're wanting to move in our lives. Help us to see that we are mighty warriors, though we don't feel like it. Help us to say, I believe you, God. Amen. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.